Number 7. Three Cosmic Messages. Second Quarter, 2023. John Pauline. Welcome, ladies and gentlemen. We're starting Lesson 7, Worshiping the Creator. The quarter is the Three Cosmic Messages. Dr. John Pauline is our moderator, and Karen is going to offer our opening prayer. Dear Father God, creator of this endless vastness of the universe and all the intricate workings of a single cell, we just pause in silent awe because your magnificent and infinite creativity is just far beyond anything we can comprehend with our finite minds. And now, in the quietness of our breath, we want to praise you with our wordless wonder, because even our most poetic words and eloquent language will never be enough to describe our amazement at all of your creativity and all of your compassion and all of your gentle grace towards us. And even though you're so far beyond what we can dream or imagine, you're bending close to hear the beating of our reverent hearts and listen to our silent praise. And all of our muddled and imperfect thoughts make perfect sense to you. Thank you that we can bring our silent wonder and watch as you transform it into worship, into the very stuff of heaven. And today, as we explore your gift of creativity and our desire to worship you, we ask the Holy Spirit to guide John as he guides us into a deeper and richer understanding of how we can find fresh ways to worship you. And may you listen to our hearts and help us translate all of our wondering curiosity in our thoughts into language that we can share here and now. And as we are blessed, may everything we say bless others, each word a gift to you and to all those who are listening online. We praise you, our creator and father, all of your majesty and all of your meekness. And we love you far more than any of our words can say. And we look forward to the day when we'll have all the words we'll ever need to worship you forever. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. We're doing a series on the three angels' messages, as has been mentioned. And this is the fourth in a series on a single verse. So this verse must be perceived as particularly important, and we will come back to that in just a little bit. But the lesson begins in number one with a couple of texts from Revelation 4 and 5. So why don't we go there? And the whole purpose of this particular lesson is to study the theme, worshiping the Creator. The first angel's message says, fear God, give glory to Him, and worship the Creator because the hour of his judgment has come. So let's take a look at first Revelation 4, verse 11. What is the reason given in this text for worshiping God? Revelation 4, 11. You are worthy, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. All right, so this tells us that we worship God because of creation. And we might ask the question, what is the connection between creation and worship? What about creation would cause us to worship? Before I open it up to you, let's look at Revelation 5, 9. They sing a new song. You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals. For you were slaughtered, and by your blood you ransomed for God saints from every tribe and language and people and nation. So here there's a sense that worship is grounded not in creation, but in the cross, in the work of salvation. You were slain, and with your blood purchased men for God from every tribe, language, people, and nation. So it says here that worship is on two grounds, on the grounds of creation and on the grounds of salvation. Is there a connection between those two? In practical terms, how would you explain it to someone who's not familiar with Scripture? What is worship? What does this tell us about why we should worship? How about Neil? I look at worship as an honor. We worship, emulate those that we love, adore, or honor. We should be honoring God for what he's done for us. Number one, creation, we wouldn't be here. Number two, we take a look at five, and it's, again, caring for us. It's God doing the things, and we need to worship and thank him for it. As I said before, and you pointed it out, imitation is the finest form of flattery. And by emulating, we worship, we flatter, we copy God, and therefore we represent him and show him to others. 
Thank you. Appreciate that. Aaron. I've heard one description of worship being worth-ship, what we value. And that goes back to the old English, I think. Originally, the word was worship, uh, ascribing value to God. Michael. First of all, it's an acknowledgement that God is the creator of all things, including each one individually. And then thanksgiving to God for the life that he has given to me and blessed me, and that it's a lifelong commitment on my part to Almighty God. Yeah, one thing I think the two have in common is both of them are God acting in our behalf. In creation, it was an advance. God created a beautiful world for us to live in before we even existed. And then in salvation, it's retrospective. God reaches back to rescue those who have fallen away. But we worship in recognition for what God has done for us. Dan? I might take a contrary view and say that I have some problems with the whole concept of worship in view of God being a friend. Now, I need a second to explain exactly what I mean by that. With my friends, I have no problems talking about them and depending on what they've done for me, talking in rather laudatory forms. And in fact, I enjoy talking about my friends and what they've done for me. Now, that may constitute worship to some people. And I find that quite pleasurable to talk about what God has done for me in a variety of ways. But it's hard for me to think that I would bow down to a friend and do some of the other things that worship usually entails. Now, I think that for many of my friends, I have great respect and reverence for. But as I said, I have some difficulty in doing the traditional things that worshiping entails. But on the other hand, in the friendship model, I feel quite positive about doing many of the things that we should be doing and having a kind of respect for what God's doing. Because the friendship model sort of throws me into a different way of associating with God than the traditional models present. But anyway, I just want to throw that in as maybe a contrarian view. Appreciate you stimulating our thinking in that way. I would like to respond to one thing you said that I think is very, very close to the teaching of scripture, and that is the whole idea of your telling what a friend has done for you. It seems that worship in the Old Testament is almost always connected with reciting the mighty acts of God. And there are dozens of examples of this in the Old Testament that telling what God has done. He brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. He led us through the sea. You know, he brought us water in the parched desert and so on. Several Psalms can go on for scores of verses reciting what God has done. So I think your analogy is very strong in the sense that to worship is, in a sense, telling what your friend has done for you. Where perhaps the analogy falls short, perhaps, is the sense that when we're thinking of our relationship to our friend, no, bowing down doesn't seem to make sense. But if you were in the presence of someone who is so much greater than you, that you couldn't help falling on your face. That maybe puts a little different spin on it. I think your analogy is a strong one, but what we say by analogy with our friends may not apply 100% to God. Anyway, something to think about. I appreciate you making me think. Let's go on to number two, and there's a number of texts there, but let me skip over to Revelation 14.7 and refresh our minds on that one, because we are now looking at the very last part of Revelation 14.7. He said in a loud voice, fear God and give him glory for the hour of his judgment has come and worship him who made heaven and earth, the sea and the springs of water. All right. So here, worship him who made. That reminds us of chapter four, verse 11, where worship arises out of the fact that God is creator. So here in the very final message, there's this sense of importance of worship of the creator. Now, there's a question I want to hear you on, and that is what evidence can you think of that suggests this is an extremely important text in the book of Revelation? Is Revelation 14.7 one text among many, or is it in some sense really, really critical? What do you think? What evidence can you cite in the book of Revelation that might point to this text as particularly important? All right, let's turn to Michael. Well, in 14.6, 
it says, then I saw another angel flying in the eternal gospel to proclaim to those who live on the earth, to every nation, tribe, and language, and people. So that in itself indicates its significance. And then he said in a loud voice, fear God, and give glory, etc. Hey, I like that observation. The very fact that it's a context of an eternal gospel that goes to every nation suggests its importance. Is there any other place in the New Testament that talks about the gospel going to every nation? All right, David? I think it's chapter 13 that talks about the whole world following the beast and worshiping the beast. And that seems to be a major point in the whole controversy. So it would seem that that also would be important, especially for Revelation 14. Let me double down on your suggestion here. David points us to chapter 13 and the word worship. What you may or may not know is the word worship in this context appears exactly seven times in relation to the enemy powers. You have worship of the dragon, worship of the beast, worship of the image of the beast, and the total number there in chapters 13 and 14 are exactly seven. The only time the word worship is used in relation to God in these chapters is 14.7. So that would suggest that that might be the most important piece in this part of the book, for sure. Good observation. Michael? Jesus commanded his disciples go preach the gospel to the entire world, not just to the Jews, in other words, but to the entire world, the Gentiles, etc. Matthew 28, yes, good suggestion. Matthew 24 even goes a step further and says that when the gospel is preached to the entire world, as a witness to all nations, then the end will come. So the idea of end-time preaching of the whole gospel is also a part of Matthew. Okay, Lou? Right after Pentecost, they were supposed to go out and all those that were involved and receive the Holy Spirit and just preach the gospel. God has given tongues for the purpose of reaching people in their own language that by people who normally speak that language, but when they were there where they had a different language, they would be able to communicate the gospel. Excellent. Thank you, Iris. You just made the point that in 14.7, there's this appeal, this unique appeal to worship God. So obviously, that appeal comes into the context where people have false attachments. Instead of giving God that place, they worship all sorts of other things. And it is an invitation to embrace the truth that only God is worthy to be worshipped and to leave the idols <laughs> and to come back to the real deal. Following up on your point, I think I've mentioned before in this group that in the Jewish mind, there's kind of a line at some point, maybe up above us, and above the line is God, and below the line is creation. That line is firm. It is never broken. It's not permeable. But the reality is that God is the ruler. God's the creator. God has a special name. Only God is worthy of worship. And for the Jew, everything below that line, everything that's created to worship it is idolatry. So if you worship an angel, or if you worship another human being, or if you worship things, anything that's created that is worshiped, that's idolatry. So truly, worship is only to be directed. Now, admiration, which is a strong aspect of worship, as we've said, admiration is an analogy here, but worship is a bit more because God is truly other in who he is. One thing that in working on a structure of Revelation, I have found that Revelation is structured as a chiasm, which is a Greek term to refer to something like a pyramid, if you can imagine. The trumpets are parallel to the bowls in Revelation, and the seals are parallel to the millennium. And you can work out some of the details of that with careful analysis. So Revelation seems to be pairings in reverse order of material in Revelation. But there's one section in the middle, and that's chapters 12 to 14. And in a chiasm, in this ancient concept, the key point is in the middle, not at the end. In Western thinking, A plus B equals C. Everything ends up where we're heading. But in Hebrew thinking, A plus B equals A. 
and that A is enhanced. And both sides end up like a pyramid pointing back to the middle. There's a Roman Catholic scholar, Elizabeth Fiorenza, whom I have known pretty well over the years, and she put this out 40 years ago, that Revelation was structured in a pyramid shape and that the center of it was in chapters 10 through 14 in her thinking, 12 to 14 in mine. But the idea that this is the central part of the book, but she goes a step further. She says there's a center of the center, and that center of the center is the three angels' messages. Now, when you notice how worship is used in these chapters, this single reference to worshiping God must be not only the central piece of Revelation 12 to 14, but if it's truly the peak of the pyramid, it's the key text to the entire book. There's no other text in Revelation that is of higher value than this phrase, worship him who made heaven, earth, the sea, and the fountains of waters which tells us that the central issue in the book of Revelation is who do you worship? Do you worship the dragon? Do you worship the beast? Do you worship the image of the beast? Or do you worship the God who truly did make heaven, earth, and the sea? And the next question would be, why does it matter? It matters because you become like the God you worship. The entire conflict in the universe is because so many are worshiping false gods and are being shaped into the image of the gods they worship. And that causes the strife, destruction, pain, and sorrow in the universe. So Revelation points the finger at worship as the key issue in the final crisis of Earth's history, which means what kind of God do you worship? Who are you becoming like? So that worship as it says in number three, is based on creation. So if you're worshiping God on the basis of creation, that raised the question, what can we know about God from the creation? What does the creation tell us? What does nature tell us about God? Not a trick question. What does nature, what does creation, what do the things God has made, what do they tell us about God? Lou? I think it tells us that he has a wonderful sense of humor. Some of the creatures that he created, he has a sense of beauty and the detail. Terry? I see creativity. I see beauty. I see order. I see that everything is interdependent on something else. And that when everything is working as it was designed to work, it inspires awe and thankfulness. And if somebody comes along to you and says, when I look at creation, I see cruelty, I see death, I see suffering. Is that also God? Michael? God is perfect in and of himself. He doesn't need us. He doesn't need creation. Except that God, since he is perfect in all aspects, he has a perfect sense of love. And he loves us. And I believe that creation is an act of love. And Particularly with us, he endowed us with an intellect and a will. That means that we have a choice to become closer to God as we understand God. And a deep appreciation of what this world is and why we are in it. Why is each one of us on the earth today in this particular moment of time? I believe it's because of God's infinite love for every one of us. But how do you know that God is good? How do you know that God is kind when there's so much suffering in this world? You don't have to answer, Michael. Just responding to your comment and saying not everyone would agree with you, at least on the basis of creation, on what they see. Aaron? It would be hard to answer that without the Bible. The story of Jesus and the story of the Bible, to me, brings harmony into what we see because we see good and we also see evil and so the story that it was originally all good and that an enemy has done this and that god is seeking to and will restore good harmonizes the fact that we see both good and evil in creation it makes sense of it we can understand from that perspective but examples of how i see god's love i think for me it would be like animals are a prime example and how devoted the parents are to their babies and even to each other. Some animals are lifelong partners, that sort of thing. And also 
how they're self-sacrificial, I guess you could say. And so where did that come from? And there's a design behind that. The lion is devoted to eating you. (laughs) And I guess the point I'm making, I think what scripture would underline is that we can know two things about God from nature. One is that there is a God. And I think physics especially is helpful in that regard these days. It suggests that the idea that this universe could have been so finely tuned to support human beings is extremely unlikely without a designer. And even atheistic scientists are saying the entire universe seems as if it's designed for human survival and existence. At least 15 laws of physics suggest that even slight deviations from the norm in any of those 15 and human life on this earth would be impossible. And if that is the case, yet they say, well, then there must be multiple universes so that this one happened by chance and then maybe the next universe is just fit for somebody else and who knows what. But the reality is, I think we have a pretty good idea that there is a God and that he's very powerful. But nature, unfortunately, gives a mixed picture. And those of us who are used to scripture see the beauties of nature more than other people do. And they are truly there. I love it. I love the opening chapter of Steps to Christ. It's a litany of the beauties of creation. That's all true. But creation does have another story as we view it today. And it's only in scripture that God reveals himself in a truer picture. And it is only in Christ within scripture that God's revelation is fully complete. So I would say that worshiping God on the basis of creation is certainly valuable, but creation needs salvation. It needs scripture to truly evoke worship in truth. Dan? I think what we're discussing right now is how subjective in many respects what we're talking about boils down to. And so I like some of the things that you said, John, about the improbability, because you start talking about things like improbability. There is science behind that, statistical science. The probabilities are the way we think. And in this regard, I'm going to tell you about something that Alyssa is doing right now, in which she's trying to bring arguments in education that are based on actual fact. And that is, she's been doing correlation between various worldviews and student achievements. And this is based upon previous work she did on something called cognitive genesis, where she showed substantial differences between children in Adventist schools versus the general public. But what's interesting is she has demonstrated in a preliminary study that there is a correlation between having the right worldview and what your achievements are going to be in school. There's much more work that has to be done in that respect, but there's actually numbers to go along with this. And so I would suggest that as the time comes toward the end and as we approach the end, that I think God will provide all kinds of additional ways of confirming his place in the universe and the fact that his ways are the right ways and that they're reliable and good. Rodney, when you ask a text about fear God and you give glory for the hour of judgment is come. I was just thinking about time and how time is important. And when I saw the hour of judgment has come, I thought it was very important when it relates to worship that as Christians, we are urged to live with reverence to God in what he has done in our lives in whatever decisions that we made. I was just reading about uh, King Solomon during the time that they were dedicating the temple. He was the king, but he led out in the worship in humility. And he also was already an adult, but he says that, uh, give me wisdom because I'm just a child. And I think Sister White commented and said, that he did that because he sensed who God was, what he did, and what he does for people. And I think every day of our life as Christians, when it comes to worship, it's how we see God and what he has done for us. I'll stop there. Thank you. (laughs) Mm, Thank you. All right, Jim? 
The text says that we worship him because he is the creator. That's putting an emphasis on that. And of course, I think it's more than just that he's powerful enough to create, which is mind-boggling in itself. But the other side also in this controversy, basically right now, is denying that there even was creation. And there was only chance and evolution. So they're taking credit away from him for even that act of creation. But how he created or how he created us, I think, is even more important. The fact that he created us in his image with the power to love and choose relationship with him or to reject him. And that not only did he give us that power, he also made provision in case we would fall short of the right path. So he not only created us in his own image, he also made a way of escape in case we were deceived. So I think that's one of the more important parts of that creation part of the worshiping him. I think the lesson is correct in saying you need to keep the two together. Creation has its limitations, but when you combine creation with salvation, the picture of God becomes much, much clearer. And the two go hand in hand. There's aspects that each brings out that the other does not. So it's a good combination, and Revelation highlights both. It's not just talking about creation. But apparently, in the very last giving of the message, there's an emphasis on creation, and we might want to ask ourselves why. Livius. Revelation 4.11, I think the critical section for me is the last part. And it says, by your will, they existed and were created. There's something a little bit deeper in that sentence, in that phrase there. And I think that we need to be living in this context. Anything outside of this context, you can't exist outside of this context. And we want to be imitators of the person that made all these things because we are to live in this context. So I think that kind of talks a little bit about worship too, why it's important to worship. Okay. Uh, Larry? A lot of Christian circles, the idea of evolution is not as verboten as it is in Adventist theology. And part of that, I think, has to do with the fact that they don't really understand the purpose of the Sabbath. It's a practical matter in their viewpoint. If God wants to take 6,000 years and create the universe and then start time in 24-hour segments or anything else in the form of an evolution, he's the supreme ruler and he gets to do whatever he wants to do anyway. There's a lot of Christianity that doesn't find that to be a bad idea. And so I think the last two lessons and this lesson are really key to some of the unique ideas that Adventism brings to an understanding of how we relate to God and he relates to us. Because if you can do away with the idea that God actually means what he says, that actions are the result of thoughts, and all of this has meaning, once you throw out the idea that, well, yeah, the first two books of the Bible really don't, that's not exactly how it happened. But then what about the last 14 books of the Bible? Did those really happen? Yeah, it's much more than just Genesis. When you compare the two, evolution is kind of based on the idea that the human race is in a gradual movement toward improvement, and that that improvement is a natural process of cause and effect. Whereas the entire scriptural perspective is that human beings were created. It wasn't a natural development. There was a creation. There was a fall. And that restoration can only happen through God in Christ. I think those two viewpoints on the big picture are in direct contradiction. What do we do with the evidence and so on? That's another story. And I think the best Adventist scientists I know will all be honest and say the evidence is at best mixed. And ultimately, we have to trust that Scripture is providing true information about God and about these matters that we can't at the moment scientifically demonstrate either the existence of God or the existence of salvation. 
these things we take from Scripture. So there's a bit of a tension between Scripture and science, but recognizing that simply capitulating to the current understanding of science is probably not going to get it done. Let's go back to Revelation 14.7. It says, Worship him who made the heavens, the earth, the sea, and the springs of water. Larry, you brought in the Sabbath here, perhaps knowingly or perhaps unknowingly, but would you like to take a look and tell me what does that sound like? Worship him who made the heavens, the earth, the sea, and the springs of water. Is there any other place in the Bible where you find that language? And the answer is the fourth commandment. And some of the very best scholars of Old Testament and Revelation. By the way, that's my doctoral specialty. Not the book of Revelation so much, although that's part of it, but how the Old Testament is used in the book of Revelation. And one of the four or five strongest allusions to the Old Testament in the book of Revelation is Revelation 14.7. So right at this crucial point, the single most important verse in the entire book there's an allusion to the fourth commandment that somehow the reason why creation is highlighted here is because sabbath will play an important role in the final events of earth's history and the final proclamation of the gospel and it's based on that that adventists have the conviction that that's something we need to share with other people all right dan i want to just go back for a second and talk a little bit about science and maybe sort of balance, say something about my position. I think there's plenty of evidence in science to suggest that there was creation. I think it's certainly not conclusive, just the way there's evidence for evolutionary ideas, which are far from conclusive. And it seems to me that God left these things open so that we can use reason. And that if we look at the bigger picture that we keep talking about, then one can utilize science plus faith to point one in a direction. But I think it's this idea that reason based upon evidence plus faith is what God calls us to do. And so I don't have any problems with the fact that God did not give us so much information that there's no question of his ways. I think he gave us enough information that if we mull it over, that it will lead us in a direction and that combined with God's revelation and gives us evidence for faith in that combination should lead us to a real respect for who God is and what he's done. All right. Thank you. Lou? Isn't that second rendition of the Ten Commandments more towards creation? The first one is creation. The second one is salvation. In Deuteronomy 5, it says, worship the Sabbath because the Lord brought you out of the land of Egypt. Oh, yeah, that's land right. Of slavery, yeah. So you're definitely speaking from biblical knowledge to even bring that up. Exodus 20 is the creation one. Deuteronomy 5 points to salvation. So the two Sabbath commands in the Old Testament, the two recitations of the Ten Commandments are different on the point of the grounds for keeping the Sabbath. And one of those says, for in six days, God created the world. The other one says, I brought you out of Egypt. And therefore, I invite you to take the Sabbath as a way of honoring the salvation that I've done for you as well. Let's go to number four, because we have been looking at how great God is, creation, the universe, the stars, the planets, the animals, you know, the environment, the beauty of mountains and lakes and so on. One danger you could have in creation is the sense that it looks almost like God is way bigger than us. God is distant. God has created this vastness and we're just, you know, tiny specks in it. Does the Bible teach that God is distant from us or does it also share that God is near? Is the question. And let's take a look at a few texts in that regard. If you're ready, Terry, let's go to second. Corinthians 5, 17. So if anyone is in Christ, there is a new creation. Everything old has passed away. See, everything has become new. So when we talk about God being creator, it's not just the vast universe. But it says that God is involved in the renewal of our own lives. When we come to Christ, we are a new creation. In other words, God is interested in the intimate details of our life. Even more powerful, perhaps, is Psalm 139, and I'd suggest verses 13 through 18. Psalm 139, 
and verses 13 through 18. This is a very powerful passage, dramatic one. For it was you who formed my inward parts. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works that I know very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes beheld my unformed substance. In your book were written all the days that were formed for me, when none of them as yet existed. How weighty to me are your thoughts, O God! How vast is the sum of them! I try to count them. They are more than the sand. I come to the end. I am still with you. So here in the psalm, it says God is actively involved in conception and in development even before birth. He's personally engaged with each of his creatures. He was there when we were made in secret inside the womb. And God already had a plan for us, even when we were just tiny fetuses. It even suggests that God's thoughts are accessible to us. So the nearness of God, I think, is emphasized here. Acts 17.27 may be even more important. So that they would search for God and perhaps grope for him and find him, though indeed he is not far from each one of us. So here Paul is talking to the philosophers of Athens. And I was in that very place just a few weeks ago. So it was fascinating to return to Mars Hill and realize there was a real place. And Paul was there and talked to real people at that time. And his argument was this, God has created us not to be distant from us, but he's created us in the hope that we would seek after him. And if we seek after him, we will be found by him. So Acts 17, 27 very explicitly says God is near to every one of us. So the Christian conviction, if you go to the great creeds of the early Christian church, they indicate two things. God is transcendent and God is imminent. God is super great and far out there, and yet God is near. Both of those are true because scripture shares both of those with us. Number five, Isaiah fifty-seven, fifteen, and this is number five in your handout. For thus says the high and lofty one who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy, I dwell in the high and holy place, and also with those who are contrite and humble in spirit, to revive the spirit of the humble and to revive the heart of the contrite. There you have them both. God is high, lifted up, lofty way out there, and yet he's near at the same time. Both of those are true. And truly, if God is God, then he would probably be more than we can comprehend. So that makes sense. Notice what it says, though, in number five. What's the difference between imminence and imminence? And for many people, it's kind of like, I thought there was one word, not two. You'll notice there's imminence with an A, immanence, and there's imminence with an I imminence. They sound the same when you just say them fast. What's the difference between those two? I would say that imminence with an A means close in terms of space, near geographically. Imminence with an I is close in terms of time. The second coming is imminent. God is imminent. He's near to us. So those words are often confused and the lesson brought out that we should at least note the difference. But the beauty of worship is that in worship, we can be near to God at the same time that his greatness is what calls forth our worship. Got a question for you to consider. We just looked at Acts 17, 27. And the question I would ask is this, if God wants to be found, why is it so hard to find him? If God wants so much to be found, why do so many people have a difficult time finding him? All right, Livius? Because we don't search for him with all our hearts. Okay. I just thought of that passage. Is there there anyone here that has searched for God like mad and yet never felt that the prayers went higher than the ceiling? Perhaps the challenge is when you're just looking at nature, when you're talking about a scientific approach, you cannot pin that down on that approach alone. I think all of us would confess that when we sense the nearness of God or the approval of God, 
it's more than just scientific evidence that we're basing it on. It's based on experience. It's based on things that you cannot fully explain to someone else. For example, I'm alive today, I believe, because of intervention of an angel at a time that I was drowning in the Pacific. And my wife, who's way smaller than me, held me above the water somehow. (laughs) And we concluded in the end that she had support that was beyond her own strength in that occasion. But when my son tells that story to his atheist friends, it goes nowhere, right? Because it's not his experience. It's not the listener's experience. You can only go so far to share the things that cause you to say, yeah, God is real and I've experienced it. But those are for you. But each person has to be willing to give God the chance to provide that kind of evidence. And many of us, I think, have from your testimonies here. But it's very clear there are some people who try to take an objective scientific approach, and you're probably not going to find God that way. Michael? Well, I had a period in my life where I could not make a simple act of faith. I doubted the existence of God. I went to uh, church-related schools. I uh, graduated from a Jesuit university and so forth and so forth. But then about 55 years ago, I just was unable to make an act of faith. I'll tell you what it did for me. It left me absolutely bereft. I was lost. And then I was with my wife a Saturday morning, a Sabbath morning, not in church or anything else. But then it just suddenly happened that I had this overwhelming sense of the presence of God and that doubt of God's existence has never burdened me since then. And I've had those moments occasionally where I feel the real presence of God in my life. I can't explain it. It's not something that's definable in words, but it was real. Mm. Thank you, Michael. And and number nine in our handout is a question that we may or may not get to, but think about an experience in which you unmistakably saw the power of God at work in your life and what impact that had. Joan? I'm going to say that I am a little hesitant and a little uncomfortable sometimes when I hear things like the Bible says, if you search for me, you will find me, right? It makes me think of sometimes when people say, if you pray hard enough, you will be healed, right? Or if your faith is strong enough, this will happen, right? When I hear things like that, sometimes it makes me think of you haven't done enough and that's why you haven't felt this. Or you doubt because you haven't done enough, you haven't searched enough. It almost puts this responsibility on somebody to say your doubt or you not feeling God's presence to the level that I have, for example, means that you haven't done enough. You haven't read the Bible enough. You haven't opened yourself enough. You haven't searched enough. And I'm uncomfortable with that. Because I don't think it's that simple. I think it may be that simple for certain personalities. I think it may be that simple for people with certain life experiences. I think for someone who's had a, I felt God and he saved my life in a way that is absolutely unmistakable, a miracle in that way, it may be slightly more simple. I'm not saying easy, but it may be slightly more simple to say, I felt God in that moment than someone who has never experienced anything that huge, right? So for Moses and a burning bush, okay, if you ask me, have you felt God in your life? And I have a staff that I can use to part the Red Sea. My answer is going to be slightly, it's going to be a little bit easier for me to say yes. than someone who I have never seen any of that. I have read the Bible I've never heard his voice, not audible anyway. I've never seen a miracle, not one that is obvious that I can't say it's caused an effect in my normal day-to-day life, right? So I think we should be careful in how we phrase those things and understand that there are a lot of factors that impact how someone experiences something. And we should be very careful to make it not sound like we are telling someone that there is something inherently lacking in the way they have searched or in the way that they're trying to find God that is making them miss something and that they're inadequate in some way versus maybe not yet, maybe just haven't recognized it yet 
or maybe it's just a journey they're on. And just because I've experienced it in a certain way, doesn't mean it's going to be the same way for them. I don't know. It's just something that makes me a little uncomfortable sometimes. Appreciate that very much. And I, I know you're speaking for many when you say that. I think that one thing that's helped me in that regard is the idea of all other things being equal. The Bible often makes absolute statements that are true at times, but not always. For example, in Proverbs, it says, if you're faithful to God, you'll be rich. If you're wicked, you're going to go to poverty. Is that true? I would say all other things being equal, I think following God's ways will tend toward prosperity and mucking up is going to tend toward poverty, etc. That's not true in every case. Things aren't always equal. So what I think Joan is saying is things are not always equal. When it says, if you search for me with all your heart, you will find me. All other things being equal. That is true. It may be true far more often than not. But I know so many people that gave everything they had and yet don't have a sense of God's nearness. Mother Teresa, just to name a famous name, her diary indicates that for 20 years, she did not feel like her prayers got above the ceiling. She felt totally alone in relationship with God, and yet she simply forged ahead and did what she believed was right, regardless of the feelings or regardless of the experience. So not everyone who seeks with a whole heart for God will necessarily have the kind of experience we think they should have. It's a good point. But certainly, if you don't search for God with a whole heart, don't expect much, right? So there's truth in that statement, but and all other things being equal might be good to apply to it. All right, Lou? This is in regards to the question about an experience that we've had where God was very obviously involved. Probably eight years ago now, I woke up at midnight. I couldn't sleep. We had had an interim for a year with no pastor. And I just felt God saying to me, not in words, but an impression, Lou, you need to be out in the foyer giving people hugs every Sabbath. Because we have greeters, but greeters are different every week, and they come and they go. But there's nobody out there that is tuned in to who's missing, who's sick, what's happening on a weekly basis with our members and also with the new people coming. And so I felt that very strongly that God was just laying that on my shoulders and it's been a real blessing for me. And so I'm known now as the hall hugger because I hug everybody, all the babies to the oldest people in the church. And it's a blessing. But that was something that I didn't come up with. I really believe that was something that God wanted me to do. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I have a recent experience to share. I was going to a conference of finance officers. I was going to do the devotionals in a fancy hotel in Orlando, Florida, 400 finance officers coming together and I'm doing the devotionals in a not exactly a church setting, kind of nervous about that. And as I was flying to Orlando and I was preparing, I had this overwhelming impression, have an altar call at the end of your devotional. And I'm kind of like, are you nuts? You know, <laughs> I don't do altar calls, first of all. And second of all, these are finance officers for crying out loud. You know, are they going to get up out of their chair in a fancy hotel and walk up to the platform and kneel down and say, you know, God, I need your help. I just thought it was a really bad idea. But it was so, how shall I put it? It was so compelling that this was from God. And I said, okay. If nobody comes forward, I'll tuck my tail between my legs and slink out, and that's all anyone will know about it. You know, came to the end of my presentation on the spiritual issues and finance and things like that. And at the end of that, I simply said, you know, I just have the impression there may be somebody here who's facing some challenges in your work that are more than you can handle, and you need God's help. If that refers to any of you, just stand up and come down the front and kneel in front of the platform, and we'll pray for you. And 60 people got shot out of their seats. I was barely done doing the sentence, came rushing forward. And I'm standing there with 60 people kneeling in front of me and 340 out there sitting there kind of shocked out of their minds. And so I said, well, I says, why don't the rest of you stand up and come down and put your hands on these folk and we'll pray together? And it was beautiful. It was amazing. Now, I can't sell that to anybody else as evidence for God's existence, but it sure made a big impact on me. And that was not long ago. 
I've had other experiences decades ago, but that one's fresh and a real stunner to me because I was going against my personal grain in all of that. And yet, if it's what God wants to do, I'm willing to do it. Coming to a close here, if worship, biblically speaking, is talking about what God has done for you, and I think several of you have emphasized it, one thing that's been very helpful to me is the recognition that there are so many things we have never thanked God for. So many things. Think about the air you breathe. Just hold your breath for a couple minutes and see how grateful you will be for the next breath of air. Well, if that air wasn't there, you'd be in real trouble, right? Thank you, Lord, for the oxygen that surrounds me. Perhaps you absolutely adore a cat or a dog. When have you thanked God for that animal? Maybe you particularly like the color of the carpet. When did you thank God for the skill of the person who put that carpet together? There's a lot of things we haven't thanked God for. And one of my mentors long ago said, you should take time each day, write down 10 things that you're thankful for, and then make prayers out of them. Thank you, Lord, for this. Thank you, Lord, for that. Not only is that worship in the highest sense, but it has tremendous benefits for mental health, a positive spirit, a can-do kind of a spirit. And my wife and I have used it from time to time through the years when things are tough and things get down. And you know what's the best part of it? If you ever run out of things to thank God for, get out a dictionary. On any page of the dictionary are things you've never thanked God for. Apes, apples, apricots. You get my point? So worship ultimately is telling God thanks for all that you've done and making it very personal. Thanking God for things in your life, in your personal experience, that you have to thank him for. I have a drowning experience to be thankful for, some finance officers to be thankful for. But more than that, there's so many little details in my life that maybe I've never stopped to thank God for. And ultimately, worship is honoring and praising him for what he has done for us. Let's pray. I thank you, Lord, for worship in the highest sense of that. It is somehow really important for us as we approach the end of time. There are so many distractions. It's so easy to take your gifts with a nod and just go on with our lives, but to take time to pull aside and say, Lord, I noticed that, and it means a lot to me, and I thank you for who you are. So, Lord, we do that now, worshiping the Creator who made so many things that bring us joy and comfort. We thank you, Lord, for this lesson and pray that you would be with us in the weeks to come. For Jesus' sake, amen.